I was earning enough money to be slightly above paycheck to paycheck, but I was not smart with my money. I would spend, you know, everything I made, um, you know, up basically, like you said, paycheck to paycheck, but it was very voluntary. It wasn't like I had no income and, and had too many expenses. I just wasn't smart. It was it was something where I could have dialed it back if I needed to. But growing up, it definitely was involuntarily paycheck to paycheck. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 279. Hope everybody's having a great week. Got the Super Bowl set now with the Kansas City Chiefs playing the Philadelphia Eagles. Looking forward to that in a couple weeks, as I'm sure the fans in Kansas City and Philly and around the country are. Should be a great football game. Football season is going to be winding down here pretty soon, and we're in the thick of kind of the winter weather. I know uh, there's a lot of snow dumping out in parts of the West, and hopefully it can uh, help the uh, water situation and drought there. Had a couple great reviews the last couple weeks. Wanted to uh, read those. One comes from Salter98, a must-hear podcast for fire. I've been listening to this podcast for five years, and my financial life has changed for the better. Thank you for sharing info regarding the millionaires who made a living not doing anything too extraordinary, but achieved to do 10% wealth status in the United States of America. I plan on being on the show in three years to share my story. Another one comes from great 62637337. Amazingly helpful. I really enjoy this style of financial podcast. Learning from a variety of well-spoken and successful people is engaging and inspiring. The hosts are great at drawing out interesting topics from the guests. Keep up the good work. Appreciate those reviews. As always, we appreciate any of the reviews we receive on all the different mediums. Helps us continue to grow the show, whether it's Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, etc. We are still looking for that 300th episode multi-millionaire. Hopefully, we're trying to get somebody who's who's uh, definitely scaled to that uh, next level. 300 million would be ideal and keep in line with what we've done with those major milestones. But uh, at any rate, uh, if you'd like to be on and uh, are interested, just reach out millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. If you're interested to be on the show in general or period and are a millionaire, please uh, email us at, at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Com. All right, that's it for housekeeping. This week we have Jerry. His net worth of $2 million. Mainly invests in alternative asset classes, real estate, gold, silver, hard money lending. He used to be a traditional financial advisor, but now runs his own business, still in the financial space. He does not own a home or a car. He rents and he also uses Uber. So we get into the discussion with him, why he chooses to do that, the different things that have transpired in his life to make the decisions that he does. He has one Thing that he lives by. It's called pie is greater than set. That's passive income is greater than savings, expenses, and taxes. Another way to kind of frame your mind around being financially free. A great episode with him. Very different than a lot of our guests as uh, Jerry does not own anything in terms of equities in the market uh, or contribute to any type of retirement account. So great episode with him. Definitely a, a different guest than we normally have had on the show in terms of portfolio and allocation in that, in that, in that regard. So last week we had a returning guest. We got caught up with last week. We had a returning guest. We caught up with Dom as his net worth had scaled from 1.1 over 
$8 million. So great episode and catch up with him. Once again, we do this uh, every so often with guests that we can and kind of track their net worth and have them on to kind of show the progress of, of different things. One of the great things that about this show, given that uh, we started this when we were pretty young, so hopefully we'll be able to track some of these people, you know, over decades and, and get a real life look into millionaires' portfolios as they change and continue to grow as markets change and uh, we have different economic events that happen. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Jerry. Jerry, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining. So give us a little synopsis of who you are. Who are we talking to today here? Yeah, so I am the uh, CEO and founder of a company called Wealth Dynamics. Um, and uh, my company, we help families and individuals become financially educated in solvents and then begin achieving greater and greater financial freedom in life. So um, it's a passion of mine. I love finances. Um, it's been a pursuit and it's something I help others with as well. So does that mean from a listener perspective, are you a financial advisor? Very similar. Yeah, very similar. Now, I don't do any sort of, um, I call it mainstream. We don't do, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, 401ks. Uh, we really do a lot of alternative investing and it's based off of, you know, what the top 1% of wealth historically have done. So like what? Uh, so if you look back, you know, the top 1% and a lot of these guys, you know, they got their starts in in banking and, and what we would look at today as, you know, Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies, but they do a lot of uh, real estate, gold and silver um, life insurance, they're big on private loans. You know, when when they do start playing in the stock market, they kind of do it Warren Buffett style. They don't really get into ETFs and index funds and things like that. So um, we kind of lean more towards, you know, the the assets that have been around for 100, you know, 200 and, and more years um, that we can really bank on that long track record. Okay, so l- l- we'll get into that a little bit. But first, what's your net worth today? So my net worth is right around $2 million today. Okay, and how is it allocated? Uh, so uh, a big chunk of that is in um, private lending, so secured by real estate. Um, so probably a, a big bulk of it's there. I'm very big on earning passive income. Um, I have a quite a bit in, in precious metals, so I do a lot in gold and silver, um, which actually collateralize that to invest in in pri- private lending. And then I also have a lot of life insurance um, and then also you know some Forex and, and various other alternative investments. And then the business equity as well? Business equity, yes. I've got my, my company and that's a, a, a pretty good chunk as well. Okay. And then I just share this because it's interesting in, in, in discussing before the show or the sheet you filled out, you have all, not that much in, in the equity market, right? Yeah, I actually don't own any stocks. I don't do any, any equity um, in a traditional sense like that. And then also, this is interesting because not many millionaires, few that I can remember have rented. So you have no home equity. Right. I do not own a home. And, and why is that? Uh, so for me, it's more of a lifestyle thing. I like the ability to be flexible and move around. My business is cloud-based. And so, um, you know, in the last two years, I've been from Alaska to um, Los Angeles. I did a road trip across the U.S. Now I'm in Florida, um, you know, probably do some more travel. And then the other aspect of it as well is, you know, there there's a certain um, return on time invested aspect. And so for me as an op- as an entrepreneur, when I look at, um, you know, renting to me is outsourcing. When I look at especially living in Alaska, and I don't live there any longer, but shoveling the driveway, fixing the pipes when they freeze, all of those things that come with owning a home. Um, and so I just look at, you know, if I rent and I just earn a higher return on equity on my, my capital, then I don't want to park it into a house necessarily. Sure. So how much do you pay in rent? 
Uh, rent for me, we have, uh, we just moved. So I think it's going to be around 4,000. We've got a nice condo on, on Tampa Bay here. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's always an interesting, and, and I live in New York. And so there's kind of like a rent versus buy scenario that always happens. But here in the city, people pay like a monthly management fee that includes their property taxes. And then obviously if they have a mortgage, they're going to pay interest. And when you do the math, you're like, this doesn't make any sense for me to lock up all this money and buy here because I'm going to be basically paying as much as I can or as similar renting. And there's real, I mean, in New York, no real guarantee that your apartment's going up in value. So it's just an interesting thing to think about. It's very much a math equation with rent. I know it's going to be rent. It's going to be insurance and some utilities, you know, with owning its principal interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, improvements, repairs, closing costs, realtor fees, and and another laundry list of other things that go with it. So and time, and time yeah. and dealing with it all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a bad idea, but it definitely is just a math equation on does it make sense and do the numbers pan out one way or the other? Yeah. So just back to your allocation here, big picture, when you look at it and you say, okay, basically nothing in the market, which also means basically nothing in retirement accounts or very little I know you have. Mm-hmm. What's your thinking on your portfolio and wealth strategy here? Is it just passive yeah. income? Is that what you're going for? Yeah. So I have an equation that I I follow and I teach all my clients and it's PI greater than set. And that stands for passive income greater than savings, expenses and taxes. Um, And that passive income is is not deferred. It means that I'm going to be earning that now this month. And the goal is to be able to get there as fast as possible to where, you know, my investments pay for a 40 percent savings rate, all of my monthly expenses and also my taxes. Um, once I'm there, I may do some some speculation and, and some appreciation style investing. But to me, I want to get financially free first before I look at, you know, equities or, or you know, other alternatives that may not be a passive income generating deal. Yeah. So I, I've heard that kind of recalled like what percentage are, are you in a sense, right? What percentage of your expenses and out of pocket is covered by passive income? So I've also heard that as a, as a way to measure it. You know, you cover 60% or 20% of your expenses with your passive income is another mm-hmm. way that I've heard people measure it. So the hard money lending, how did that start for you? Yeah, that started for me um, several years back. I used to be a mainstream financial advisor. And so I did, um, you know, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and retirement plans. And um, I actually ended up giving that business away. And that's another story. But once I gave that business away, I started looking and researching at, okay, well, what do the wealthy do? Um, And when I started researching, I kept on coming up with banks. You know, you look at, at, you know, all of the, you know, the JP Morgans and the Rockefellers of the world somehow or, or, or some way they got involved in banking at some point. And that was a commonality that I saw. And then when I looked at this, I noticed that that is what banks do. They loan money against secured real estate. Um, they don't want a piece of the deal. They don't want to be partners. They just want to get paid their interest every month. And so that was something that um, for me was very attractive you know, truly passive income means that I mean is that I don't have to be involved in it. And so the most passive I can get is a loan where I just get paid every month. So where did you get the money to lend out? Uh, business profits. So uh, I'm not I'm not big on on uh, OPM and raising. I just, you know, increased sales, increased revenue. And I started just setting aside money until I had usually with a, with a private lending deal, you need about 50,000, right? So I got my first 50 or so did my first deal got some passive income to that. And I started snowballing that. Now I have this new flow of income in addition to my business profits that can kind of stack up even quicker. And so I just kept on rinsing and repeating on that same cycle. And how did you find people to to lend to? Where did the contacts come from? 
You know, I was really fortunate in that sense. Um, so growing up, when I was probably in sixth grade, all the way through high school, my best friend, his dad, um, was was kind of a, a, a influential figure in my life. And his dad never worked, but they weren't poor. And I didn't know why. And so when I finally, you know, gave that financial advising business away, I sat down with his dad and, and his dad was like, hey, you know, I want to share with, with you what I've been doing and, and how I earn my income. And basically he owns a um, private lending real estate fund. He's been doing it for 30, 40 years. And so I had somebody that, you know, I had known for the majority of my life that had a strong track record. The deals were all local to me. And so I was able to just start hopping in and investing with him. Um, and so I was able to have a pipeline of deals immediately that I could start putting money into. Interesting. Even starting at like the $50,000 minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you think about on real estate, um, depending on the market, probably not so much in like a New York or an LA area, but I grew up in Alaska, right? So if you do the math on a multifamily apartment unit or a storage facility or a mobile home park, if you divide the price of a building or, or a complex by the number of units, the per unit price comes out to anywhere from 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. And so that's where that number comes from is that's kind of the the minimum threshold to be secured by a unit, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So let's just back it up, Jerry. It's really interesting, but let's back it up to your story. And I know you shared just recently here that you were a financial advisor and before the show, it was with Dave Ramsey, right, as an ELP, endorsed local provider. How did that mm -hmm. all start? Where did, where, did you always knew you were interested in money? Did your parents teach you about money? What did you study in school? How did you get to that point? You know, it's funny. Um, I had no interest in money growing up, right? So my my family, we we grew up in poverty. Um, my parents got divorced when I was probably seven or eight years old, and it was over money. Um, that same summer, we lost our house and our car, and also, you know, we were homeless, living in a trailer um, behind somebody's house. And so, I had this really bad relationship with money. And so, in high school, you know, I actually didn't care about money. I was into fitness and sports. My goal was to be a bodybuilder, and so I graduated and I got my personal training license and I started working at the gym. And within like the first six months, I got basically promoted as high as I possibly could go. And I had a friend that got into financial services at the time and he had talked to me about it. He's like, hey, you'd be great at this. And I kind of wrote him off. I was like, hey, it's not my thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in helping people with fitness. And so at that gym, it was kind of the, the ceiling. I started running into it and I realized, man, I have to look for another opportunity or I'm going to be working here until, you know, one of my managers quits or dies. And so I finally took my friend up on his offer and I looked at the financial advising thing and I didn't love the math and, and, and the, the products and all that. But what I fell in love with was the, the idea of helping people was very similar to what I was doing as a personal trainer. You know, people had a lot of debt. I had reality and experience with that growing up. People don't have enough income. They're paycheck to paycheck. Those were all pain points for me. And um, I could relate that to, you know, if somebody's out of shape or they're trying to lose weight or they have bad eating or exercise habits, being able to see the change as I work with them on improving that. And that's really what got me into it. So at, at that point, when you were working at the gym, was it paycheck to paycheck you were living? I was earning enough money to be slightly above paycheck to paycheck, but I was not smart with my money. I would spend, you know, everything I made, um, you know, up basically, like you said, paycheck to paycheck, but it was very voluntary. It wasn't like I had no income and, and had too many expenses. I just wasn't smart. It was it was something where I could have dialed it back if I needed to. But growing up, it definitely was involuntarily paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I'm just thinking out loud here, because it's a big shift, right? I mean, you go from growing up in poverty to really not understanding anything about money, then all of a sudden to becoming a financial advisor, working under Dave Ramsey, who's obviously conservative and has helped so many millions of people. And then you're young and have a net worth of $2 million plus. So mm -hmm. it's a, 
from a perspective of life change is pretty drastic. Was it, was it this friend that kind of helped you? Do you, do you give a lot of credit, I guess, to that, to the initial success or changing your mindset to him? You know, he definitely helped change my mindset. I probably for the first three or four years struggled and I, and I didn't do well in the industry yet. And I think for me, what really, what really got me there so quickly was, was kind of my mindset. And I think I picked this up from bodybuilding where, you know, I knew if I did the work, I would see the result no matter what, right? If you lift a weight over and over and over and you eat enough food, you're going to grow muscles. And so I kind of looked at with the financial advising world, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm 18 when I'm starting out. I didn't know anything about money. You know, I had very little credibility. I, I didn't have money to start with. And so I knew that I just had to work. There was kind of a level of, of one mindedness and intensity that I was able to tap into. And it's kind of the same thing I would tap into in the gym um, where I was able to, you know, after after struggling for three or four years, really just sink my teeth into it and say, OK, it's time to just go and make this thing happen. So I was with that initial firm maybe two or three years before I jumped out and did my own thing. Um, and at that point, that's when I got picked up by Dave Ramsey and I was with him for a couple of years as well. And it was kind of just, you know, a combination of meeting the right people, um, you know, me putting in the work, of course, and also gathering more and more information and just be willing, being willing to learn and put the work in. So did you feel like you talk about putting in the work? Did you feel like when you started saving and investing and trying to get on your feet and, and get the passive income going and kind of grow that? Did you feel like it was happening too slow? Like, were you impatient at all at the beginning? Uh, probably not at the very beginning. I think at the very beginning, I was kind of just, you know, feeling things out, right? I didn't have a dollar to my name. I was saving. I was doing the Dave Ramsey envelope system. I think I saved my first thousand bucks. I put a few grand into a mutual fund, you know, was trying to pay off debt. And so I was kind of just getting my legs under me. And it wasn't until a couple of years later where I realized, you know, A, the potential that I had, as I mentioned, on, on growing my own business. And then B, um, the time advantage I had on my side. If I could become financially free by before the age of 30, that meant that I had until I was, you know, 80, 90 years old, however my life long my life is going to be of really not having to trade time for money and being able to live in the most free sense possible. And that really was kind of where the impatience started because I, I am an impatient guy and I wanted to get there really quick. It was kind of this thing where if I'm going to be free, I want it to be tomorrow, not in 10 years. Yeah. And I don't mean the impatience is a bad thing. It's more of just, especially if you're in debt and, and we've had millionaires on the show that are several hundred thousand dollars in debt and they're paying it off little by little. And it's not that you get impatient, it's that you lose confidence or motivation because you feel like the progress isn't happening as quickly as you'd like. Totally. Yeah. And I, I see a lot of that with clients when I work with them. And I think, you know, for me, what was helpful was the ability to really control my income, right? Because I was, you know, an entrepreneur uh, and I did have the ability to increase my income as fast as I wanted to, you know, I, I was willing to work and make that happen. And so that definitely cut the time in half. Now, granted, I didn't have a ton of debt at the time. It felt like it, but I had, you know, two car loans and some credit cards and that was kind of it. I didn't have, you How know, some of the, student I think the car loans, you know, were probably total of 30 or 40,000. You know, the cars were probably worth 70 or 80% of the loan value. So it's definitely a little bit upside down. And then I had maybe five to $6,000 in credit cards. So nothing crazy, but I, I see people today that have, you know, five, six figure student loans and and the car and the credit cards. And that definitely is a, a bigger hammer you've got to be able to swing with. Yeah, but it's still a lot, Jerry, if you're working as an ELP, you know, I mean, I don't know what you made, but I can't imagine it was a, it was, you could pay that off quickly under that salary, right? 
So that was actually a, a more of an endorsement. And so I was still a kind of a commission base, right? So if, oh, I, if I sold okay. more mutual funds, I could make more money. And so I just did the math and kind of reverse engineered it and said, hey, I need to sell this much and bring on this many clients and that'll get me where I need to be at. So now here's kind of an, a curious question. Now having shifted your thinking to passive income and out of the market, I mean, mm-hmm. it's totally opposite of what Dave teaches, right? Totally opposite. He's yeah. like your your four, your four mutual fund categories. I mean, what's the take? How come you don't put some in the market just to diversify? You know, that's a good question. I, I really had to research again, and it goes back to what did the wealthy actually do? And if you study the wealthy, they don't diversify the way that we hear today. The idea of diversification actually comes from something called modern portfolio theory, and that was developed over the 70s and 80s. And it was around the same time that 401ks came out and mutual funds really started being heavily promoted. And um, if you look at prior to that, you know, the wealthy people, the top 1%, they would actually go all in first on themselves and their own businesses. And so if you study like Rockefeller and Morgan and Carnegie, um, they did no diversification until their businesses were up and running. And then they would usually get into symbiotic industries that were very parallel to what they were already doing. And then they would start to get into investments that also kind of funded either their business or were completely passive. And it wasn't until they're they're at the level where they have so much money that they have to start putting it in other places. And it's it's a different problem that they're solving. It's not necessarily spreading the risk. It's more like, you know, I filled this cup up and I need another cup because I still have tons more that I need to put into things. Versus if I start smaller where it's like, hey, spread the word, the risk diversification really is a byproduct in the modern sense of not knowing what I'm doing. And so if I if I don't know what I'm doing, instead of spreading the risk, my take is just get educated so that I do know what I'm doing. And I can most beneficially do that by learning about just one or two things really, really well and focusing on those. All right. Where did you learn about these guys? What specific books you read? Biographies. Yeah. So I, it was actually a very tough trail to blaze. blaze. There's not a lot of, of uh, I would say there's not a lot of third party content out there about them that's actually true and kind of raw and unadulterated. So, you know, I read Titan, um, which was Rockefeller's biography, uh, House of Morgan, you know, Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth. And I really just read about them from themselves and from their biographers and tried to get an objective view of what they actually did. Yeah, because like Think and Grow Rich, right? Like I feel like in a lot of these self-help and personal finance books, it's quoted just a little bit. You hear a quote or a story here and there that kind of touches on those guys, right? Yeah. Versus a book like Titan, I think uh, it's a if you do it on Audible, it's, it's like a 37-hour book, and it really is just uh, <laughs> you know, a chronological telling of, of John Rockefeller's life. So <laughs> you can pick up a lot there. Yeah. So in terms of the lending, what are your terms normally? What do you see? You know, I really like to do about a five to 10-year deal. Five is common for me where I'll lend money out for a five-year six, uh, fixed term. Um, I'm going to charge anywhere from 8 to 12% interest. It can be sometimes, uh, you know, amortized slightly or it can be interest only. Typically, I'm looking at, you know, income-producing assets. I don't like doing developments. I like doing deals that already cash flow. And I like to see about a 50 to 70% loan-to-value ratio, which means if I'm if I'm a 50% loan to value, that means if I'm putting 100,000 in, the asset that I'm I'm loaning to is is worth you know double that. And so if I lose, you know, there's a a foreclosure event and a default, and I've got to take away the asset, I know I still double my money just on the value of that asset. So you always take first position on a property. It's never lending when they already have an existing mortgage in place. In most cases, I have done some with existing, and and there has to be enough equity and enough cash flow, right? Where that that first note is serviced and then 
that second note can be fulfilled, you know, either through a fire sale on the asset on equity or the first position, which is now the owner can service me through the cash flow. So in some circumstances, I'm okay with that as long as the numbers pan out. Okay. So eight to 12%, five to 10 year loan, any points up front? Uh, I typically don't charge points. No, you know, the, the rate that I charge is high enough above what they would get out of bank where, you know, the, the points are kind of unnecessary. So who, who's using this? Somebody that's doing a flip, buying, uh, buying something cheap and then fixing it up and letting it cash flow? Yeah, you can do that. I don't love flips just because there is a little higher degree of risk there. There are actually funds that that focus on, you know, long, you know, holding income producing assets. And so that's typically what I focus on is buying, you know, a, a, a fund that's going to buy, you know, say a two million dollar mobile home park and they're raising capital on a loan and they're probably going to make, you know, 15 to 20 percent between all their returns and they're willing to pay me 12 just to be a passive, you know, lender on the fund. So I like that a lot better. I have done some flips. I don't do them frequently just because there's the there's the risk of, you know, the unit doesn't sell or the tenant doesn't show up. And now we've just got this vacant single family home sitting on the market. So in the first example that you shared, they're they're taking a 15 percent return. Presumably they're paying you 11 or 12. So they're netting three or four. And that's what they're getting to investors. And they're just promising reliable, steady cash flow. Right. Yep. And then basically, if they can't cash flow for me, I, I take away the the asset. So it's always backed by something. It's always you always have something tied. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So then, besides the the personal lending, some in in uh, other alternative assets, right? Yeah. So I do a lot in gold and silver. Um, right now, more gold than silver, and uh, you know, that's for me just a good solid store of value and asset to own. I do collateralize it, meaning I can buy the gold and actually borrow against the value of it to go do some of these private lending deals. And that allows me to arbitrage and kind of double dip on my returns. So I do some of that. I do quite a bit with um, high cash value life insurance, very similar to uh, what banks do with their tier one capital. And so I put reserves there. I do some deals with that. There's a, a Forex trading fund that I'm in as well. A couple other assets that are that are kind of in that alternative group. So why why does life insurance, I mean, I know why, but what's your take on, on life insurance? And it's something we haven't gotten into a lot on the show, but it gets a bad rap, right? And and a big piece of that is obviously due to, five, to Dave Ramsey, anybody who's in the personal finance world. But why life insurance? Why do you diversify there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll preface that with being being a former Dave Ramsey guy, I, I thought life insurance was the devil, right? So uh, I was totally against it. And so what I, I learned as I started researching and kind of opening my eyes up to what else is out there, someone had told me, they explained to me that they were putting money in a life insurance policy. You know, they were putting, let's say, 100 bucks in just, just for math's sake. That 100 bucks was now tax-free. The IRS couldn't touch it. Creditors couldn't touch it. Lawsuits couldn't get to it. And it was going to compound at, a, at about a 4 to 5% annual growth rate tax-free. And they could simultaneously borrow against it at you know a 2 to 3% interest cost and go use that money for whatever they wanted to and earn double interest rates on it. And I, I, called, I called BS on that. I was like, there's no way. And, and so sure enough, I was shown an illustration and I saw that. And it actually was exactly what they explained. And I thought it was fake. So I started researching. And what I came up with was that the, the banks in the United States of America, they keep... 
about 20% of their tier one capital, which is their most prized reserves. It comes out to, to most of the, 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 the larger banks. It's about $180 billion total are kept inside these cash value policies. And then I started researching further and I saw that the Rockefellers used them, the Rothschilds, Walt Disney, Ray Kroc. Uh, you can look at, you, for example, Joe Biden has six of them. There's just so many wealthy people in, in US history that use them. And so that showed me that they couldn't be bad because those people aren't stupid. Right. And I had to really then start looking at, you know, what is this and how does it work? And it was exactly what I explained to you. So now that's what I do is I keep a lot of my reserves in life insurance because it's going to grow, you know, much better than I'm going to get in a bank. It's more liquid than a bond. There's no volatility. I can't lose money. I can rely on the returns. It's protected from taxes and, and all of these other aspects. And then that money is available for me to borrow against and use for these different deals. Wow. So where does somebody learn about that, Jerry, if they're interested? Um, there was a guy in the, and he actually passed away one or two years ago, back in the 70s and 80s. There's a guy named Nelson Nash, and he really kind of popularized the concept. He was a real estate investor. And so he really started using it for real estate and publishing what he was doing and, and built the big following. So he's got a book called Becoming Your Own Banker. And that's another one you could check out that really kind of dives into the nitty gritty of how it worked. Hmm. Interesting. Thanks. So what motivates you now? What's your kind of deeper motivation? Is it is it to cover your expenses here? And and what was your motivation five, 10 years ago? How has that changed for you? Yeah, so I think when I first started, uh, my motivation was very different. For me now, on a long-term level, you know, my motivation really is kind of almost to see what I'm capable of doing. I've got a lot of time left on this earth, and so I wanna kind of get as close as I think I can get to my potential, and I think that I've got a lot of ways to go on that. You know, obviously financial freedom was a big motivator for a while. Right now I'm on pace to hit that, you know, probably January or February of next year. And so that'll be kind of a box checked. And, and you know, I've really experienced the benefit of achieving greater degrees of financial financial freedom, whether it was debt freedom or solvency or not having to go to a job anymore. And so really helping others experience that, too. That's really um, you know, what I, what I love doing. And at this point, you know, it's kind of the thing that drives me is just getting as many people as I can into that same position and, and allowing them to see what it does for their lives too. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the, let's jump. I mean, normally we end with mistakes and advice, but that's, that's what you shared before the show, right? Is, is making financial freedom a number one priority, you know, f focusing on the right things, learning for yourself. I mean, is that the advice you'd give and, and what mistakes have you had? Yeah, I think, for me, the biggest mistake was, you know, kind of kind of shutting my mind off to money. And I think a lot of people fall into this where there's a lot of taboo around the topic of money and finances. You know, it's the root of all evil and a, a rich man can't get to heaven. And, you know, nobody likes a greedy person and all these things that we grow up hearing. But the reality is, is my experience was that I went to school and was told to get good grades so that I could go to college, so that I could get a degree, so that I could get a job. And the purpose of a job is to earn money. And then when you get the job, my, my goal is then to get the house and the 401k and the car and the retirement. And those are all surrounded by money as well. And so everything in life does have have money attached to it in some way, shape or form. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. As I think my mistake was thinking that that was a bad thing and I didn't want to have anything to do with money. But in reality, that's impossible, right? For me to have nothing to do with money, I'd have to be homeless in the park. And even then, I'd probably be begging right. for donations, Right. right. So whether, whether I, you like it or not, it plays a role. Right. It, it's an involuntary thing. And I actually, yeah. you know, when I first got married, you know, me and my wife were homeless for the first six months because I had that mindset. I was like, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to sacrifice my time and my my effort for money. And the reality is, and this is probably my advice, is you know you can achieve financial freedom through poverty to a degree. Like I've seen homeless people that they probably don't worry about their bills. But it's not a great lifestyle. And so the other option is, you know, achieving it through wealth. And, you know, that's a very noble pursuit. It doesn't have to be this thing that makes you evil and greedy and and all of these different things we hear. Um, and so that's really where I help people. And what I would advise is, you know, look at what do I want my life to look like and what would it take for me to fund that in a way where I'm free and I'm, I'm living the way that I want to live. So if you look at your life and where you got, obviously, young net worth of two million or more. Is there a couple things or are there a couple things that you can point to and say, hey, that's how I've been able to do it? Whether it's being willing to sacrifice, whether it's taking on, you know, maybe somebody's riskier if somebody views it as that hard money opportunities, is it starting a business and being able being willing to take that risk? What couple things would you pinpoint and say that's what made me financially successful? Yeah, that's a great question. One of them, and this this is still something I practice today, and I remember the moment it stuck out to me was a chart that I saw. It was um, it was showing the savings rate in relation to the income of different wealth classes, and it was showing over a hundred year period. And so it was like the top one percent, you know, the next ten percent spread, and then the bottom ninety percent. And I noticed that the top one percent on that chart they save 40% of their gross income. And when I first saw that, I was like, holy cow, that's impossible. But I started looking, okay, well, how could I do that? And I made the decision to, to commit to that number. I was gonna figure out a way to save 40% of my income. And I think that for me was the main linchpin. You know, if I did everything else wrong, but still managed to save 40% of my income, that puts me way ahead of the game. And so that was big. And then the other thing for me too was not investing in things that I didn't understand. And for me, understanding means that, you know, I, I can draw it on a napkin. It's that simple. I couldn't do that with a mutual fund. There's different, you know, fund families and different, you know, market capitalizations and and different companies and holdings and balance sheets. So those were probably the two big things is save 40% and don't invest in something that I can't draw on a napkin. And um, I think if somebody just took those two things, I'm not saying you should only take those two things. There's lots more out there. But if you did just those two things, I think you'd be in pretty good shape. Yeah. Do you feel like your happiness and confidence levels has increased as your net worth has increased? Totally. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's, there's um you know, some some relation to that is, you know, knowing that you have the net worth. But I think most of it is is the degree of freedom that you get as it goes up. You know, the the idea that I can't buy organic food because I can't afford it, even though I know it's better for me. You know, that's definitely a stressful thing or, you know, not being able to get medical care when I'm sick because I'm worried about health insurance, different things that kind of go away as you build your net worth. And so my confidence definitely has gone up. My happiness has gone up. I've been able to help other people donate you know, start businesses, you know, do things I just never would have imagined as my net worth did grow. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up here, Jerry, with some uh, rapid fire questions, and then we'll get into a final last couple questions. So what's the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, most expensive car right now, I don't actually own one. The most expensive was a BMW X6. And I think I spent 70, 70 or 80,000 on it. Um, how, do you, how do you get around now? You lease one? So I live in Tampa and I basically Uber. I, I, oh, everything okay. is just kind of right there. So I looked at I could put 70 grand into a car or I could put it into a deal. Um, and I just couldn't make sense of putting it into a car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, most expensive shoes you've ever bought. This goes back to high school. I was a basketball player, so I don't know if you know the stereotype dropping, you know, two or $300 on a pair of basketball shoes. So that was, that was probably back in, you know, 10th grade, 11th grade. 
since it, since being in business, I've bought nice shoes, but I, I have not spent that much money on them as compared to when I did sports. Okay. How old were you when you became a millionaire? I think I was 25 or 26. It was right in that time period. That's young, man. That is young. Yeah. And that was just from take from mostly from that hard money London, just getting the snowball going. Yeah, just getting the snowball going, and and you know really making sure that my business was earning you know actual profits. Yeah, and then the forty percent thing definitely helped too. The more you make, the more you save, the more you invest, and it just starts to build. So how do you decide? You mentioned the small business. How do you decide how much to put back into the business versus investing privately on your own? You know, I think it really depends on the business, right? So some business has some businesses have very high costs of goods sold and and contractors. Mine is not that way in the financial industry. You don't have to buy inventory, and so um, I had you know a lot of just free cash flow, and so I was able to take you know forty percent off the top, still reinvest in marketing, still reinvest for staff. I think you know being in a in a digital oriented business can be a little bit less expensive too, because there's a lot of automation where you can have technology do the job instead of a human being. And um, that allowed me to accelerate probably faster than maybe a general contractor, right, where I've got to buy equipment and I've got to hire subcontractors and there might be a very small piece left over at the end of it for myself. So it's different for me. You know, I definitely did a little bit, little bit of both, but I think I pull a lot more off the top to reinvest into assets than most people do. Yeah. How much do you spend a year? Household expenses annually. Household, we're probably like just for household. I'm going to say not the things we we also write off on the business. Probably around sixty thousand, and that includes the rent. Yeah, that includes the rent, the groceries. I don't have a car payment, don't have any debt, so it's kind of just rent, and then you know whatever else we want to spend money on. All right, awesome. Well, Jerry, thanks for coming on. Net worth of two million dollars. Appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.